I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 um, all the way to the end of chapter 1 and then verse 1 of chapter 2. So verse 12 of chapter 1, but just for the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading from verse 5 of chapter 1, because in verse 5, that's when God responds to Habakkuk, and then verse 12, Habakkuk responds to God once again. So verse 5 of chapter 1, Habakkuk. This is God speaking. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And now Habakkuk responds. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes, then to see evil cannot and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings, them all, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch posts and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive your word this morning. Help us to place ourselves under the authority of your word, under the authority of Jesus Christ, and to trust your words, even when they are hard to bear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are moments in life where a belief that we once held with such conviction is challenged. It's questioned. We were so certain of this belief, this conviction, but due to reasons, sometimes unbeknownst to us, that belief begins to have a little more bend. 
It's not as solid as it once was. It's, it's almost as though something has slowly chipped away at this solid pillar of conviction. This, of course, often, hap- often happens when something in our experiences seems to contradict that once held belief, or at least seems to be in conflict with that belief. An obvious example, of course, is someone who believes deeply that God loves them. But due to unwanted circumstances, some form of suffering, all of a sudden that once held belief begins to be questioned. For they cannot comprehend how a loving God would allow them to suffer in such a way. We've probably all had moments like this. Some of us have had seasons like this. Some of us are in moments like this right now. Our dear friend Habakkuk was in such a situation as he wrestled with God and his ways. You see, Habakkuk would have believed with all of his heart and mind what Moses had declared about God in Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Habakkuk would have believed that with all his heart. He would have believed that God's ways were perfect, that all his ways were just, that he was without sin, that he was faithful, and that he was upright in all his ways. He would have believed this with his whole being. But something has happened that has disturbed his soul. God has acted in such a way that Habakkuk is left questioning the goodness and justice of God. He believes that God is good and just and faithful, yet his circumstances have chipped away at this once solid pillar of belief that he held so firmly. So, what does he do? What does he do? Well, simply put, he wrestles with God. He storms the throne room of God, demanding and expecting an explanation from God. See, I think Habakkuk, in one sense, provides somewhat somewhat of an example of what a Christian ought to do in moments when their belief and faith are being tested and shaken at the foundation. See, I think Habakkuk demonstrates what faith looks like in the midst of a faith crisis. Habakkuk in verses 1 to 4 is wondering when God will respond to the evil that is running rampant in Israel, the, the wickedness of Israel themselves. He's wondering why God has not intervened to make Israel right again. And, we, and as we saw last week, God responds in verses 5 to 11. God answers Habakkuk. But his answer is shocking. God tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, to be his instrument of judgment against Israel for the rebellion and wickedness. God has chosen to use this wicked people, the Chaldeans, to be his instrument of justice upon the nation of Israel. This was not the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. In fact, God's answer to Habakkuk was worse 
than no answer at all. This didn't resolve the inner turmoil that Habakkuk was feeling towards God. It actually only deepened the inner turmoil. It only led Habakkuk to further question and confuse and question God and, and have confusion and a sense of despair in regards to God. You see, in Habakkuk's mind, the cure that God had prescribed for Israel's sin was worse than Israel's sin. The belief that Habakkuk had regarding God being good and just was now shaken. The pillars of his faith were not as strong as they once were. And so what does he do? Well, he does what any person of faith should do. He turns to God and wrestles with God. And there are several things that we see in Habakkuk's response that reveal what was going on in Habakkuk's mind and heart. And the first thing we see is that despite Habakkuk's dismay and confusion, there is actually still a glimmer of hope on the part of Habakkuk because of who he believes God to be. You see this in verse 12, where he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. You see, Habakkuk, in his moment of confusion and despair, calls to mind, appeals to God on the nature of who God is. There are several things about God that he speaks of. He speaks of God's eternality. Are you not from everlasting? Are you not the God who has no beginning and no end? The, the one who does not change, the one his, who is immutable, the one who stands outside of time. He also makes reference to God's covenant name where he says, O Lord, my God. That word Lord there is the covenant name of God. It means Yahweh, Yahweh, my God. You see, 12 times in Habakkuk is God's covenant name used. God's name was a reminder of his covenant faithfulness to Israel. And so it's no coincidence that Habakkuk in his distress calls to mind that God is a covenant-keeping God, that he has made a covenant with Israel and that he doesn't intend to break it, even though the situation in Israel is dire. Not only this, he makes mention of God's holiness, where he says, my holy one. Now, this description stresses God's complete otherness and uniqueness. It captures his essential difference from all created things and all supposed gods. And so in the midst of such darkness and turmoil, Habakkuk fixes his mind on the nature and character of God. This is the beginning solution of addressing his distress over what's occurring before his eyes. See, I know God to be the everlasting God. I know him to be the covenant-keeping God and a holy God, despite my personal experience right now. Not only this, in these verses we see the intimate relationship that Habakkuk has with God that allows him to approach God and to appeal to his nature. And we see this with the simple word repeated twice. My, my, O Lord my God, my Holy One. 
You see, some of us may think that if Habakkuk really knew God and had a meaningful relationship with God, then there's no way that he would express his complaint and disturbance to God in the way that he does. But the opposite is actually true. It's precisely because Habakkuk knows God that he is able to express himself the way that he does. He's not afraid to pour out his heart to God because God is his God. His complaint to God doesn't reveal his lack of relationship with God, but rather a deep relationship with God. As David Pryor states, paradoxically, His very strong inner security, that is Habakkuk's very strong inner security as a person beloved by and belonging to God, releases him to batter the gates of heaven and berate the living God. It was the fact that he knew he was beloved by God, that he was able to batter the gates of heaven and berate the living God. You see, if you believe that God is good, But sometimes you internally doubt that he is good. Sometimes you feel that he isn't actually good. If you believe that you should therefore not express this to God, that is not a sign of faith, but a lack of an intimate relationship with God. The one who truly knows God expresses how he feels to God. In his distress, Habakkuk looks to his God and appeals to God's nature. And then he says something that almost seems to come out of left field. We shall not die. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Seems like it doesn't fit. What's going on here? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. Why does Habakkuk out of nowhere exclaim, we shall not die? Well, it's here where I think we see Habakkuk's small glimmer of hope. In light of God being holy, in light of him being a covenant-keeping God, in light of God being eternal, Habakkuk concludes that we shall not die. Now, the we, of course, is God's covenant people, Israel. So though the Chaldeans will bring affliction by the hand of God, something about God's nature assures Habakkuk that this will not be the end for Israel. See, here's what I think Habakkuk is doing. He's tying the fate of Israel to the nature of God. He's tying the fate of Israel to the nature of God. There's another example in Scripture that I think that makes this clear. In Malachi 3, God's speaking about judgment against Israel, but he says these words that demonstrate a level of God's restraint and captures his mercy in the midst of judgment. Malachi 3, 6 says this. This is God speaking. For I, the Lord, do not change. Okay? That's a reference to God's nature. He is immutable. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see that? 
The reason why Jacob, Israel, God's people are not consumed is because of who God is in his nature. He does not change. In other words, the nature of God in relation to your well-being matters. The reason you're not consumed, Israel, is because of who I am. And I think that's what's going on here in Habakkuk. Habakkuk says we shall not die because he's rooting this in the truth that God is eternal and therefore he doesn't change and therefore he will remain faithful to his covenant. Stephen Charnack, I think, captures this so well when he says this. It is impossible, it is impossible that the believer who is united to the immortal God that is from everlasting to everlasting can ever perish. For being in conjunction with him who is an ever-flowing fountain of life, he cannot suffer him to remain in the jaws of death. If you are united to the eternal God, it means that you shall not die. Because God is eternal. He is immortal. You see, the eternality of God is extremely applicable to our lives. When God says that he loves us, it means he loves us eternally. If God isn't eternal... Though he may love you today, there's no guarantee that he will love you tomorrow. But the reason Habakkuk has hope is because he knows who God is, that he is the eternal covenant-keeping God. This is Habakkuk's glimmer of hope. Though judgment is coming to Israel and it will be horrific, he also knows that God is who he is. And therefore, there's a confidence that Israel will not be destroyed altogether. We shall not die. The second thing we see Habakkuk do in his response to God is acknowledge God's plan. He acknowledges God's plan. Verse 12, O Lord, you have ordained them, that is the Babylonians, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. See, he's simply acknowledging what God said in verses 5 to 11. It doesn't mean that he likes it, as the following verses demonstrate, but he acknowledges that God has said he will do this. He acknowledges that the Chaldeans are not operating on their own. They are, in fact, God's instruments of judgment. Now, this idea would not have been completely foreign to Habakkuk. He would have been familiar with what happened with Assyria and Israel, the the northern tribes, when, when Assyria conquered the northern tribes of Israel. Not only that, he would have been familiar with the conquest in which God used Israel to judge the nations. He also would have been familiar with Deuteronomy, in which God told Israel that if they were unfaithful, he would raise up a nation to judge them. But what I want you to notice is that God's judgment of Israel was also a means of correction for Israel. It was an act of chastisement and rebuke against his people. Remember, God was Israel's father and Israel was his son. 
So when God judges Israel, he's also chastising them. That is correcting them as their father. In other words, God's judgment of his people is always meant to be a means to an end. Never an end. God has established the Chaldeans for reproof. That's what Habakkuk says. For correction. He wants to correct and restore Israel. And one of the ways in which he will do this is by allowing Israel to taste the horror of sin at the hands of the Chaldeans. As I mentioned last week, to give them a taste of their own medicine. I don't know if you have read the book, The Horse and His Boy. I believe it's the second book in the Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's actually the best book in the Chronicles of Narnia. But the story follows two young people uh, that is Shasta and Aravis, who's the girl in the story. And these two flee. They're attempting to get to Narnia for fear of their lives. Now, Aravis, the girl, the way she escapes from her family in order to go to Narnia is that she gets her maidservant drunk with wine and mix some things in her cup so that her maid would sleep for several days. And this, of course would allow Aravis to escape unnoticed. And so she escapes, but her maidservant suffered the consequences and experienced lashings on her back for not watching Aravis. Well, a little later on, Shasta and Aravis are being chased by a lion. And the lion attacks Aravis and goes across her back with his claws. He inflicts pain upon her. Now, later in the story, it's discovered that the lion, of course, is Aslan. Aslan inflicted the pain on her. And Aravis finally meets him. But she doesn't know that it was him who inflicted her while on her journey. She thought it was just another lion chasing them. But there's this conversation that Aslan has with her, and this is how it goes. Draw near, Aravis, my daughter. See, my paws are velveted. You will not be torn this time. This time, sir, said Aravis. It was I who wounded you, said Aslan. I am the only lion you met on all your journeys. Do you know why I tore you? No, sir. The scratches on your back tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's slave because of the drug sleep you cast upon her. You needed to know what it felt like. You needed to know what it felt like. Israel needed to know the horrors of their own evil. And therefore... God afflicted them by the hand of the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk acknowledges this to be true, but that doesn't mean it's any easier to accept. In fact, though Habakkuk begins by appealing to God's nature and acknowledging God's ways, he's still facing an internal dilemma. Though his mind has acknowledged God's ways, it seems his heart cannot still fully accept it. His heart is in conflict with what he knows to be true. 
And this is what we see next. We see Habakkuk's internal dilemma or his inner turmoil. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see, Habakkuk believes God to be holy and pure, so pure that his creed tells him that God cannot look upon wrong. But his experience, his heart is telling him the opposite. God, you're idly looking at evil. You remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Now, of course, Habakkuk is contrasting Israel and the Chaldeans. You see, he knows that Israel is sinful, but he's also convinced that Israel is still more righteous than the Chaldeans. Yet God seems to have no issue with the Chaldeans swallowing up, swallowing up the more righteous Israel. His heart cannot reconcile this reality. He cannot comprehend the seeming contradiction. It reminds me of Jeremiah's complaint to God in Jeremiah 12.1, where Jeremiah says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? In other words, the wicked prospering and the treacherous Thriving doesn't seem to fit with righteous are you, O Lord. This is the internal dilemma that Habakkuk was facing. It began in the first verses of Habakkuk, but it's only increased for him since God revealed what he was going to do. So overwhelmed is Habakkuk that what he says next is close to blasphemous. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Habakkuk knows Genesis 1. He knows that God has made humanity in his image and likeness. He knows that God has given dominion to humanity, but his experience tells him that humanity is no different than the fish of the sea in God's eyes. God, you intended for humanity to have dominion over the fish, but now humanity at the hands of the Chaldeans are being treated like fish. And you're just letting it happen. As John Calvin states, God seems to sport with human affairs. For if he regards men as his children, why does he not defend them by his power? God seems to sport with human affairs. For if he regards men as his children, why does he not defend them by his power? Now the reason Habakkuk uses the fish imagery is because of what the Chaldeans were doing to the nations. You see this in verses 15 to 16. Habakkuk gives a description to God of what the Chaldeans were like. Now remember, God was the one who gave the first description to Habakkuk. But now Habakkuk gives his own. Look at verse 15. He, that is the Chaldeans, brings all of them up with a hook. 
He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. The imagery is disturbing. The Chaldeans caught and hooked people like fish. Amos 4.2 also alludes to this. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. You see, sometimes captives were taken away with hooks in their noses, pulling people with hooks in their nose. The horror of it all. But notice that the Chaldeans gloried in it. So he rejoices and is glad. They're delighting in their oppression and their vile practices. Not only that, Habakkuk draws to God's attention the idolatry of the Chaldeans, which God had already mentioned in verse 11. But verse 16, therefore, he, that is the Chaldeans, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. They're prospering because of their behavior. See, this is the language language of worship. Sacrifices and offerings. Their God is their strength and might, as God has already told Habakkuk. It's all of this that disturbs Habakkuk's soul. It's all of this that causes him to question God's ways. See, though he acknowledges God's sovereign decree in raising up the Chaldeans, his heart cannot grasp how this is remotely righteous on the part of God. And this is why he cries out in verse 17, is he, that is the Chaldeans, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. Is he to keep doing this forever, God? Just wiping out nation after nation? And it's that question that God answers in chapter 2. And the answer, of course, is no. The Chaldeans will not do this forever. But here's what we need to see. Habakkuk's complaint in these verses is similar to his complaint in verses 1 to 4. In verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk's complaint was due to God's seeming lack of response. How long shall I cry for help? Why do you idly look at wrong? You see, he felt that God was not acting, was not working, and it caused him great distress. He wanted, to, he wanted God to act, to intervene within Israel. But in verses 12 to 17, Habakkuk's complaint is not so much with God's lack of action, but how God has chosen to act. In fact, Habakkuk is more appalled at the way God has chosen to act than he was at God's lack of action. See, I think for a lot of us as Christians, we tend to think that our deepest frustrations with God is due to his lack of action. We cry out, how long will you always allow my suffering to go on? When will you act? When will you intervene? But the more I think on this, the more I'm convinced that it's not with God's lack of action that our hearts tend to struggle with the most, but with how 
God works in our lives. God providentially works in our lives in ways that we don't often like. In ways that often, if we're honest, even seem cruel. Just take Job, for example. You see, we're quick to acknowledge God's work in our lives when life just seems to go according to plan. But when things don't, we think God has abandoned us when in reality, He's just as active in our lives as before. He's simply working in a way we don't like. Sometimes God brings blessing. Other times, He brings affliction. We love it when God brings blessings, but not so much when the affliction comes. We love it when God gives. We don't like it when He takes. We love it when God permits. We don't like it when He forbids. We love it when God opens a door. We don't like it when He closes a door. We love it when God saves but not so much when he judges. But if God is infinitely wiser than us, then he will act in our best interest even when we don't feel it to be so. He will seek our good even when we may not like the means by which he seeks our good. You know that Inez, my little girl, doesn't always like the way in which I father her. If she did, I'm probably not a good father. See, there are times where she loves the way I parent her. But then there are times where she absolutely hates the way I parent her. She has no ability at the age of two, at this point, to grasp that I may cause her a level of harm to actually protect her from greater harm. She thinks that I'm cruel. She thinks that I'm being unfair. You see, she has no ability at this point to fully grasp that the reason I've said no to another cookie is because I care about her health and well-being, except when she's at church when all of you give her cookies. <laughs> she thinks I'm being cruel. She thinks I'm being unloving to her. And so she throws a fit. She doesn't understand that I will sometimes afflict her with a level of pain for her good. Now I, as a finite human father, can sometimes get my parenting wrong. And I do. And I have to ask my two-year-old for forgiveness. That's a good practice, parents. Sometimes my response isn't the right response. But the fact of the matter is, I'm fathering Inez in such a way that there will be days where she likes my parenting and days where she hates it. But in both those days, I'm just as active. I'm still seeking her good even when she doesn't get it or understand it due to the limitations of her understanding. You see, all of us are like Inez when it comes to God. We don't have the capacity to grasp God's ways in our lives and why he sometimes blesses and sometimes afflicts. But here's what I know for sure. 
Though I can get it wrong as a father, God never gets it wrong. He knows exactly what we need and what we don't need. He knows exactly what to do in a given situation. And we might not like how he does it, but it's for our good. He knows when to afflict and when to bless. He knows when to judge and when to save. He knows when to chastise and when to praise. See, this was the inner dilemma or inner turmoil that Habakkuk was facing. He was struggling not with God's lack of action, but with how God was acting. This was the inner inner turmoil that he was facing. Now there's one last thing we see Habakkuk do in the midst of his turmoil. And it's described in verse 1 of chapter 2. We see Habakkuk's unrelenting determination to seek God and to wait for God's answer. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch posts and station myself on the tower and look out to, to see what he will say to me and what I will answer him concerning my complaint. See, often there was a, a watchtower um, that would be used in an ancient city to keep a lookout for possible incon- incoming enemies. But here, Habakkuk has entered the watchtower to look out for God's rebuke of his direct challenge. In one sense, he's saying, God, I will wait here until you give me an answer. I will be vigilant in expecting a response from you. See, here's what you have to see. Habakkuk's determined to hear from God, but he's also inviting God to correct his thinking, to show him the error of his own ways. You see, some may think that this is an act of faithlessness on the part of Habakkuk, but I don't think it is. I think this is an incredible act of faith in the midst of a faith crisis. I think this is Habakkuk exercising his faith when his heart is struggling so much with God and his ways. You see, if Habakkuk was done with God, he wouldn't be determined to get an answer from God. You see, there are many people who've had similar inner turmoil over God and his ways like Habakkuk did. But there are few who are as determined as Habakkuk to seek God for an answer and an explanation, to be willing to be corrected by God. They bring their objections, but they're not willing to wait around long enough to truly get an answer. I've seen this happen often. Someone who once professed faith in Jesus, who who seemed to be walking with the Lord, and then something happens. Either something in their experience or something about God and his ways that they struggle with. Maybe it's, it's a doctrinal issue like God's wrath or the doctrine of hell. And I'm always amazed that when I've had those conversations with them and have asked them, what have they done in light of those objections? They really haven't done much. But they've thrown away their faith despite the fact that they did very little to seek answers for their objections. In fact, I think they demonstrate quite clearly how little they knew about God and how little they wrestled with God. Their faith was shallow. 
You see, they might be able to list off all their complaints and objections, but they've done nothing to seek answers for those complaints and objections. As Mark Dever states, many of us will have bad thoughts about God, but then we do not go to the trouble of seriously reflecting on those thoughts and why we had them. Instead, we allow them to dominate our opinion about God as they pass through our heads unhindered. See, there are two ways to respond when one is faced with inner turmoil in regards to God and his ways. One response is simply to allow cynicism and and indifference to dictate how you respond. One response is to to dismiss God, which many do. The other response is a determination to turn towards God and berate the gates of heaven seeking God for an explanation. As David Pryor states, there has always been this important distinction between bitter cynicism and believing confrontation. One is a denial that refuses to believe. The other is a belief that refuses to deny. One makes assertions and will not stay for an answer. The other makes assertions and will not move until there is an answer. Which one describes you? You see, Habakkuk does what the child of God, what the people of God ought to do when God is at work in ways that cause us to doubt his goodness, that cause us to question whether he's truly for us. Habakkuk calls to mind God's nature and character, which provides him a glimmer of hope. He acknowledges God's ways, but he also lays his soul before God with the inner turmoil that he's feeling. And then he takes his place and seeks and waits for God to answer. To close, I simply want to say this. Habakkuk had a glimmer of hope because of what he knew about God's nature. That he was the everlasting God and that he was a covenant-keeping God and that's why he was able to say, we shall not die. Habakkuk said this in light of God's eternality, his holiness and the old covenant. He had a glimmer of hope because of that. But how much more confidence and hope should we have knowing that God is still the eternal, holy God, but also that we are a part of the new covenant, the better covenant that has been made in Christ's blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. See, when you're experiencing inner inner turmoil over the ways of God in your life, wondering whether God is good and, and whether he is for you, when you're experiencing the affliction of God, look to the cross and remember that Christ's blood was shed for you. Jesus was swallowed up by the wicked despite him being more righteous than all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is easily offended. We thank you that you are a God who 
is willing to converse with us, to hear our cries and to hear our anguish, and that you're even willing at times to give us an explanation. We thank you that you are a personal God, that we can lay our souls out before you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us that kind of faith, the kind of faith that Habakkuk had, that to storm the very throne room of your presence and to plead with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith and the endurance to trust you and to seek you when our faith feels like it is shattering. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.